0: You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges. And follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. So, welcome back everyone. And uh, thank you for coming back. We are going to continue our uh, journey into bits of Africa and Africa's story that we haven't talked about so much so far. Um, In fact, many of the issues we are going to discuss have been tackled uh, in the earlier session. We're going to be talking now about free trade. Uh, Africa's embarked on a a, a venture of uh, creating a continental free trade area. And some of our participants here are quite au fait with it and have some ideas about where to take this discussion further, how the EU can work with this new initiative or standing initiative. We're going to talk about money and funding for some of the plans that we've talked about so far, about jobs, and we're also going to come back to the issue of governance. Joining me on the panel are Frank Matzart. Chief Executive Officer, Trademark East Africa, uh, which is a not-for-profit company working on growing prosperity in East Africa through trade. So Frank is here to talk a little bit about his experiences so far and what he hopes for from the free trade uh, area. Also with us, Anisen Busienge, uh, Operations and Maintenance Director for Frontier Energy, which is a leading investor in the African renewable energy market. Thank you very much for being here as well. Christopher Bayer, Vice Chair of the Management Board of GIZ, uh, which is of course the German Development Agency. Thank you very much for being here as well, Christoph. And last but not least, Richard Amor, head of global partners, operations directors at the European Investment Bank. So we're going to kick off with the practitioner, the one who's there, sort of writing all the, uh, I guess, the the, the documents that are needed to facilitate trade over barriers. And we know that intra-African trade is not very high compared to intra-European trade or intra-Asean trade as well. So, Frank, give us a little bit of your insights on what's not working now and how would the... Continental Free Trade Agreement, Area Agreement, sort of try and change the current landscape.
1: Okay, thanks very much. And, and may I say it's great to be here today. Um, yeah, I, I think, first, first of all, I mean, you know, we, we need to sort of, when we think about sort of EU Africa trade, I think we really need to be clear that it has to be a reciprocal agreement. Okay. And I think that's really quite important. Where I sit in Kenya, I've been working in Africa um, on and off for 20 years, um, I see four containers coming in full, and I see three containers going out empty. Only one container goes out full for, of exports. And I think it's important to bring that across, sure. is that actually there's a big trade deficit. And the relationship with Europe is not just about cheap imports, It's actually about generating exports. And I think that's very important. That's where our our, our countries in in Africa are thinking. And it's not just about exporting raw commodities. It's actually about adding value to those commodities. And uh, I think the African Free Trade uh, Agreement potentially offers a great opportunity for Africa to trade with itself. Because in the end, it may be easier to export to your neighbor than it is actually to export where we are now in Belgium, and because it's a lot more complex. So I think the the CFTA is a a great step forward, um, but I think we also need a reality check on the unconstrained optimism, okay? It's going to be a great opportunity, but it will need political will, and particularly political will from some of the big players on the continent, South Africa, Nigeria, um, I think particularly important, because we're not seeing all that political will there. I think the other issue is that it needs to address the -the on-the-ground constraints to trade. And I want to say a bit about that. There are some very positive experiences with trade facilitation, but on the ground, uh, I think a recent article looking at the movement of day-old chicks from Côte d'Ivoire to Ghana, just taking that as an example, the delays at the border meant that all of the day-old chicks arrived dead on arrival. Because it took seven days to get through that border seven days. think about that. how much does that cost? it costs a lot so you know I think we need to think also about some of the cartels let's face it. Uh, there are some quite high profile entrepreneurs in Africa that make a lot of money out of those cartels and the lack of movement of goods those may be some of the challenges, but the opportunities are massive to lift the continent's growth rates um, but it It's not just about getting a great and beautiful trade agreement and sorting out problems like the rules of origin, which could be thorny. It's also going to be about tackling the the problems on the ground. And the the organization um, I run is called Trademark East Africa. We work as a facilitator with addressing some of the key bottlenecks to trade in East Africa. We operate across the seven countries there. And looking at the key bottlenecks, usually the ports, where you have big levels of delay and corruption, We've managed to reduce the time through the ports with our partners by 50% over the last five years. Borders are a massive problem, as I said. And it is solvable with political will. We've seen a reduction of about 70% of time through the average East African border. And automation of trade has massive room for improvement and efficiency. For example, in Rwanda, a country that we were talking about earlier, the single window there's reduced the time it takes to import goods from 11 days to now less than one day. So these things can be done, but it will need that concerted work on the ground. Um, I think Iran should talk very eloquently about the, also the potential for services trade, particularly digital services trade, and the Continental Free Trade Agreement. If it's ratified and looks at services, could provide that really useful regional regulation that often is really absent at the, the national level. And there are some simple things, like recognizing professional standards across borders that we've, we've done quite a lot of work on in East Africa that could help facilitate that. So I, I guess my view is that you know, currently, intra regional trade, I think, only runs at around 18%. OK, in Europe, it's what? 67%. So the big opportunity for Africa is to trade with itself, but also to add value to the exports and create regional value chains that can make a big difference.
0: Is that, is that changing? Because I know we've taken part in discussions like this, I think, five five or five years ago. Has that changed? And, I mean, leading up to the decision to launch this free trade area, has there been a change on the ground?
1: Yeah, there's been a big uh, change on the ground. Um, I, I've qu- tried to quote some statistics at you. So, I mean, overall in East Africa, um, we've invested about half a billion many others, ITC are very active, many other partners there. Um, The time it takes to move goods around, the high cost of trade has reduced by 40% since 2010. So that's a big change. If you think about reducing trade costs in Europe by 40%, what would that do to competitiveness? It would be a massive kicker. So we're now seeing businesses conducting uh, business across East Africa that didn't before. We're beginning to see the emergence of some regional division of labor and value chains, because in many parts of Africa, that's totally absent, yeah? So uh, there's been, there has been real progress. And, th- I mean, I don't know, the proxy that I look at for our success is how long does it take to move a container from a port to a capital? Very simple statistic. The World Bank uh, produces it every year. You can quibble about the accuracy, but broadly as a proxy, it's not bad. But it's 2010... To get a container from uh, basically Mombasa to Kampala, we were talking about the the footwear factory earlier that's going to open there, which we're looking forward to, Um, 21 days it used to take, and that's about 1,200 kilometers back in 2010, and you can now do it in six days. So if that's not an improvement, Shada, I don't know what is an improvement.
0: There is an improvement, and we will talk about e-commerce later on as well, but thank you very much for giving that slightly upbeat. Note to our discussion. So, Anicent, let's go back to the issue of uh, jobs and skills. Uh, Frank has said that things are changing on the ground. There is dynamism there in terms of breaking down barriers. But a lot of the problems that you have talked about and you have to deal with have to do with skills development, something that we talked about in the earlier sessions
2: as well. Please. Thank you very much. Um, I work for Frontier Energy as the Operations and Maintenance Director. Uh, Of course, Frontier Energy is the leading investor in the energy market in Africa, Uh, but specifically I'm dealing with a Ugandan portfolio where we are focusing on hydropower. Uh, Of course, this kind of investment creates jobs, Uh, but what we need to focus on is uh, the sustainability of the jobs created. First of all, we need to agree on... uh, how we assess the number of jobs that are created, because if you focus only on the direct jobs, then you will miss the point, because a hydropower plant, say, employs very few people, but if you assess based on the direct jobs, indirect jobs, and then you look at the induced jobs, which I think make up the biggest percentage of the jobs that are created as part of such an investment. Uh, Now, if we agree that the biggest portion of the jobs created in such a development uh, is mainly induced. It means that we need uh, people trained in vocational uh, skills because if it is over 90% that is being induced as just one project, then the issue of vocational skills is very key. Uh, of course, we have the jobs, and we'll create them, and we'll have the statistics, but then what about the sustainability? And we need to focus on developing uh, vocational scaling projects that can continue to create um, and empower people to be available to take on these jobs once they are made available. Uh, Of course, going back to today's theme, what does Africa want from Europe? Of course, uh, investments which in the end can create jobs, but in some countries that are in Africa, uh, I will not say that this is relating majorly only in Uganda, specifically Kampala, but in some countries, you find that Europe will bring the investment create the jobs, but on top of that, export the labour from Europe to do those jobs where they have been created. Of course the reason they will give is that ah, no, these people are not trained enough to take on these jobs, which I want to disagree with. Uh, because I think we can still do something if we invest into vocational skilling, because the kind of education system that is available in Africa, I would say needs to be um, reinvented to focus more on the skills other than having so many degrees, university degrees. So still the question is, if we want the sustainability of these jobs created, what can Europe do to ensure that um, we have the well-equipped labor to take up that. Thank you.
0: And said, can you give me an example uh, of where it should have been done this way? We should have invested in skills and you know, sustainability of jobs, but Europe or a project that Europe was involved in didn't do that?
2: Uh, of course, the project that I'm dealing with, uh, we do not have uh, such a challenge, but this is uh, on a wider scale when you look at Africa. For us at Frontier Energy, we we invest in training and skilling the people as well as uh, ensure that the people who are trained from the local communities, mainly through the construction phase, they are able and available to take on the jobs that match their skills. So we have uh, been trying to do the matching. Right.
0: Thank you very much. So Christophe, that brings us nicely to you, because uh, you have been working in the field of development, sustainable development, millennium development goals, and you know, as we heard earlier uh, in the session, Africa is changing. So I was just wondering, from your perspective, GIZ, looking at Africa today, what do you see as a road less traveled, where we can really make a difference, as Arantxa said, co-develop new ideas and new actions?
3: Yeah, thank you very much, um, uh, first of all, for inviting me, because it's a good opportunity to exchange. And um, uh, secondly, for the for the question. And um, uh, let me explain a little bit why, uh, as Mr. Nook explained already, we are so much focusing on investment and job creation and so on. And I think there are two reasons for this. The first is if we have a look on the bilan- uh, uh, balancing um, the, the Millennium Development Goals, we can see that... Yes, especially Sub-Saharan Africa was not as successful in addressing um, fundamental development issues like, for example, Asia or um, Latin America. But even in Sub-Saharan Africa, we have considerable progress in a lot of very important indicators like access to water, like access to health, like child mortality, like um, uh, mother mortality, and so on and so forth. But what we have not um, uh, achieved, our African partners, together with their international partners, is really what has been discussed here, sustainable, inclusive growth, which is really creating jobs at a scale what is needed. Mm -hmm. And I do not want to uh, repeat the numbers which have been reported already in the first session, but if you have a look on Africa, in average, the growth rates are quite high. So we have quite high growth rates. But this, this growth is not inclusive. It's not creating jobs hmm. enough. And it's not, from the scale, Is not enough if you have a look on demography and, and other issues. And um, we have heard already some comments about what is the reaction of Europe and others on the refugee crisis. One good thing is that um, finally, I think, the issue of development and development cooperation uh, is now part of the main political discourse mm-hmm. in our European countries. And this is very important for us. It's, it's really interesting. But now we are asked from everybody, as we had been active in the business since 30, 40, 50 years, so what do we have to do different now? Why, why should we believe that nowadays, if we spend much more money in the, in the sector, we will be successful with this? and it's a difficult question i have to admit because it is not true that we did not address the right issues before the question is only what can we do differently and i would like to start with 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 three things and it's all related to jobs and 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 um and i would say inclusive growth first thing is um i think we have much more seriously to directly work together with the private sector, we have really to start with the perception of the private sector. Why do I? Why? What? What are the main factors why I'm not investing in this market? And we have seen in the second um, session of, of this uh, event that there is a potential. If it, it's urbanisation, it's, um, uh, it's it's energy, it's um, it's services, ICT, and others. There is a high potential but why is there so less investment in it? And I think um, we have to be more focused on, on the cooperation with the private sector, and it's funny that I am saying this, is GASET is working very closely to directly with the private sector. We have more than 1,500 um, uh, projects where we directly work with the private sector, but still, to take this very seriously and then try to remove the hindrances, you know, the challenges on the ground by addressing different business communities is important, according to my, my observation. And if we start with the different business communities, let's start with foreign direct investment. This is, I think you will say something about this as well. Um, if it comes to foreign direct investment, I have the feeling um, we had not been successful in creating the sustainable growth also because of governance issues. Because we have not been successful altogether in creating conducive environment for the business sector, meaning economic governance is in most of the countries really bad, still bad. So what shall we do? Shall we go on with our capacity development programs, working with the governments, in order that maybe in 10, 20, 30 years, we have better conditions? We can't do this. We have really, um, we have a time pressure, and we have a pressure because there are so many young people who who, who are really um, dependent from the jobs. So what I would say is, if it comes to the foreign direct investment, we need situations where we can really um, uh, contribute to a conducive environment, even if it's not the case in the whole country. And this is the idea of the free trade zones or special economic zones or whatever you want to call it, clusters or whatever. I think foreign direct investors need such an environment because they can't wait until the red tapes and other issues are are going to be. We know from our experiences that these special zones have their advantages and disadvantages. What we need is, and I'm totally with you, what we need is to increase the local content. So we need the linkages Mm -hmm. between the special zones and the the other environment of the enterprises. And I totally agree with you, we have to avoid that labor is, uh, is, is, is uh, exported. Uh, exported to the countries. Right. So what we did, I give you one example where we, as GA said, we tried to increase local content on the labor market, and it was very successful. We once got a commission from the Ethiopian government to build 10 universities all over the country, in all places, in the regions, everywhere. And we did this, but not by taking an international construction enterprise or a German one, and given an order and then they built the 10 universities. But we did it by concentrating on the local labor market. We developed the skills, we, 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 we supported small and medium scale industries in order that they, that they are able to serve this new market. And we created with this, I would say 700,000 jobs and a lot of small-scale um, companies which right. can now serve the African market in general, not only mm-hmm. in Ethiopia. And I think this is what you said. Because what is important is, yes, we do a lot also as Germany for skills development, but um, you need not only the supply, you need the demand side. And the demand side are the investments. Two last points very quickly. Right. The second business community you have to address is the African uh, uh, small and median enterprises. And there, it starts already to become more difficult because there I'm back to the issue of access to finance, conducive environment, one-stop shop, and et etc. We know from our experiences what businesses are needing, and it is difficult because it's a huge task. And the last business community is in the informal sector. And we heard it from Mr. Nogue, I agree, maybe 80%. Um, of, 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 um, of economic development is happening in the, in in the informal, informal market. Right. So, uh, in the informal sector. So what, what shall we do there? Hmm. And there, I think, especially if it comes to the poorer sector of the informal market, I think we have also to discuss about social security. We have to do something on social security to unlock the entrepreneurial um, potential which we see, which we saw in the last round of a lot of young people, creative, hmm. being able to become entrepreneurs, but have to struggle on a day-to-day basis to survive. How shall they have time for skills development and for other things which make them to entrepreneurs if they don't have this? So this Mm. last sector is very much linked with social security, and we have to work on this as well. Mm. Sorry, I was a little bit long.
0: No, but you were also connecting all the dots, and it comes into one virtuous circle where you change one uh, factor and the, the and, and, and the change then travels across. Thank you very much, Christophe. I'm sure there'll be questions from the floor for you and some of the issues you've raised. Let's turn to Richard. And Richard, we've been talking quite a lot about private sector throughout. You know, ODA, uh, official development assistance is obviously not enough. If you're going to get the SDGs, you need to involve the private sector. The terms have to be right, obviously. Um, and, and, and so I was just wondering, from the EIB's point of view, you have an external investment plan, you're involved in many projects in, in Africa. What have you learned, and what are you doing which is slightly different from the past? Uh,
4: firstly, thank you very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Actually, from, for the EIB, we're celebrating a big birthday this year, so we're, we're 60 this year. Um, but what's very the interesting is... Thank you. But what, what's very interesting is is our first operation in Africa was just five years after our foundation. So we actually have uh, 55 years of experience of working with our African partners on operations and projects in Africa. Now, what we're talking today, we've heard so much about jobs and growth, and and that's actually really the the heart of the the greatest challenges that we're all facing in in, in our development community that that we're here today. And and what was interesting we were talking about was that it's... What is changing from the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals is this idea that Public funds and grants are never going to be enough They won't be enough to bridge that two two and two and a half trillion euros of annual investment That is required to meet the Sustainable Development Goals So so how do you bridge that gap and it's certainly from the EIB's perspective and the way that we, we're looking at this challenge is It's all about crowding in private sector finance so this is you know, making sure that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that new areas and new p- people can be part of, of working and developing in Africa. So, for example, for, for, for the EIB, about two-thirds of our recent activity in Africa was targeted at the private sector. But what is very clear is, is the challenges in the future, what is being missed, and here it's, it's, it's institutional investors, it's pension funds, it's the capital markets, and how do we engage with these actors who haven't traditionally been able to get comfortable with the risks associated with doing projects in Africa? How do we bring them along? How do we get them involved, and how do we get them doing these projects and and, and being the new actors and the new catalysts for development in Africa? So I think what's interesting as part of that discussion, actually, is, is, is the Commission's great new flagship of the External Investment Plan, uh, to which the EIB is, is very committed to. Um, I think actually what's interesting about the External Investment Plan is that it, it actually it, it takes some of the, the, the lessons learned from what we were doing inside the EU under FC, the, uh, the Fund for Strategic Investments, and then applies them to outside of the EU and these three pillars of interaction and intervention that will bring in the private sector. So it's, it's a guarantee that will allow actors like ourselves to offer products and offer um, structures, that, innovative financial structures that weren't previously available. It's new access to blending. So it's technical assistance and, and, and capacity building and building uh, on the ground, as we say, sustainable jobs in Africa. And it's also, and I think this is key, is it's, its focused policy dialogue. Now, EIB is not necessarily involved so much on the, on the policy making side, but what we see from, from FC inside the EU is, is a successful catalyst for mobilization of invest, investment needs policy dialogue at the highest level in order to allow institutional investors and, and, and the private sector to be comfortable in taking the risks in, in operating in an environment. I'll give you an example for, for the EIB under the external investment plan, and you were talking very rightly about you know, what are we doing different? And we went out and we talked to institutional investors in the renewable energy market, and we asked them, what's stopping you from doing more business in sub- sub-Saharan Africa? And the answer that we received actually was, wasn't really a technical problem. They weren't worried about uh, putting the projects in place or implementing the projects. What they were worried about actually was the risk of the, of the off-taker, of getting paid. So what we're doing is, is we're setting up under the EIP, hopefully, a new structure that, that covers partially the risk of non-payment from an off-taker. So it's dealing very specifically with what institutional investors want and providing a new and an innovative response to that policy need.
0: And is this changing the dynamics? Is it changing the conversation?
4: We hope so. I think what's been very interesting from the institutional investors is, is that we're going to talk to them. They were... They were it was they new. Were, they, they was new. They were, we were asking, so what do you want? And I don't think that that very specific question has necessarily been asked loudly enough or, or, or strongly enough. And we're trying to f- come up with financial products and structures that deal with their very, very specific concerns.
0: Thank you. I, yeah, go I, on. I, I
4: just wanted to round up one thing, because I was also in, 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 in Lomo, in, in, in Togo last week. And I just come with a couple of the things that were mentioned on, on the panel before, and I wanted to just give some views and feedback on that. And what struck me one was, was the positivity and ambition of the ACP states. They're ready for the post-2020 world, and, and they're, just, they're looking for support. That was very clear. But on, on the, specifically on, on, on the free trade areas, the, the same things that we're hearing, it was boosting intra-African tra- trade, boosting African value chains, indigenous growth, and what they were also looking for was diversification of African businesses. They've seen what happened in in the EU under the single market, uh, and they want that themselves. Mm. And I thought that was a very interesting dynamic.
0: It is indeed. Uh, How long long is it going to take to actually get the vision uh, into reality on the uh, continental free trade area? How long is it going to take? I mean, Frank, you can tell me.
1: Well, I, I think uh, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. I, I, I think uh, if you look at the trade agreement itself, um, it's going to take a while to agree, um, basically, particularly the formula on the rules of origin, just to move goods around. Right. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're, we're really talking about a, a five to ten year time horizon, I'm afraid. And then, you know, the kind of bottlenecks that I was talking about on the ground, there's a lot of political will, but it needs to be harnessed. Um, It's fine to talk at a a big conference about, um, for example, stopping problems between, okay, let's just use that example again, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, but actually getting the customs officials at the border to change their their mindsets and behavior is is another thing. So I I think it's going to take a while for that to permeate down. But maybe maybe I I, I just also want to just comment on one thing that, that you said, Christophe, which is really about you know, FTI and related to that, that free, you know, the continental free trade area. Because I, I do really think you're right. You've got a good point that you can't, you know, it's going to take a long time to get the, the, the environment completely perfect. What we need to do is take small steps to get big gains right. in place quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that does mean looking at industrial cluster development and trying to create a much more streamlined uh, trade facilitation and and basically investment climate in those areas so that we can catalyze. And and I I also agree with you about the local content. You know, I I think, um, I don't know, I came across this term the other day, which I thought was very interesting, subconscious bias. Subconscious bias is an interesting thing. You're sort of biased against something, even though you don't quite recognize why. And, you know, my board chair is a Tanzanian entrepreneur, and he was complaining about the Tanzanian mining industry importing everything, even uniforms. Mm -hmm. So the subconscious bias from that mining company was to import because why? It was easy. They knew they could get a supplier in Europe to get the protective clothing to protect the workers. No issue. They could, you know, it was easy. But the fact is, it was wrong. And actually, it takes quite a policy step to actually force particularly foreign investors, to take that step to then actually develop the local uh, linkages. And I actually think these yep. this sort of industrial zone approach um, or cluster approach could be very useful in making that happen quicker because it's going to take a while right. for us to realize all of this across the continent.
0: Right. Let me take uh, the pulse in the room on that issue of uh, special export zones and clusters uh, as catalysts. I was just wondering how many of you think it's A good idea to pursue uh, in Africa. Can I see a show of hands? How many think this is a good idea? Good idea. Well you have a lot of convincing to do because not many people in this room think and I just wonder why that is. But let me let me take a few questions from the from the floor and and get some insights and maybe maybe some uh, ideas for you to take home as well. So can I see a show of hands? I see one lady putting her
5: hand up. I see two. Ok, so let's start here. Yes, please. Introduce um, yourself. Hello, my name is Kisal uh, Baka and I work uh, for the European Centre for Development Policy Management, ECDPM. And my question is on the continental free trade area, because this is uh, a project that we are working on at ECDPM. I want to know um, whether you think that this agreement will actually see the light of day and move from just being an ambitious um, agreement to actually being implemented. And uh, as you've seen, uh, the regional hegemon, such as South Africa, hasn't signed, hasn't even signed the Free Movement of People Protocol. We ha- we've seen the, the, the Nigerian president pulling out of the Kigali summit at the last minute. Nigeria hasn't signed. So what do you think are some of the fears of these um, of these leaders for these, for these uh, regional hegemons in their own ranks? And do you think that the fears that they have actually outweigh the potential benefits from actually um, implementing the CFTA? Right.
0: Thank you. Thank
5: you very much indeed for that question.
0: The lady over there, please.
5: Thank you. Yeah. Pascaline Gabori, Pilot for Dev. I have had the chance to work on a small scale project supporting young entrepreneurs in ecotourism in Arusha, Tanzania. And the skills are there. The potentials are there. The people are really willing. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, make it a success. Uh, The resources are there, but still we are confronted to uh, difficulties such as computers not working, water and sanitation, hospitals are not there when they are sick and schools are not working properly. So my question now, really straight to the point is, don't we need something like a Marshall Plan for Africa? How do we make SDGs a reality there? I mean, shouldn't we start with Africa as we all have an interest in SDGs? and uh, is there a potential for fair right. trade, especially in the view of the Post-Codernou agreement?
0: Right, thank you. thank you very much. So we come back to the Marshall Plan for Africa. So, last question from the gentleman over here.
6: My name is Christoph Heuler. I run a, a, an office with, I run with several German companies on uh, technical training on uh, environmental technologies and agriculture, organic agriculture. And I try to get to set up with them business with Africa, and I have, now I have some question to you because you were talking about. Or well, I tell you very shortly, problem I have is always the last mile, as we call. We have to discuss a lot between. We have to identify partners. Very difficult. It's not so easy to find them and to get a communication because often they not even answer mails. I need also a lot of business. if I want or if I like it or not, I have to deal with the government especially if I come on environmental technologies uh, or education, and then I need access to the government. Also a very difficult question. And then again, when, I wanna, when I'm in touch with the people, it can help. Can I stop, so I usually the typical question is, yes, we want to work with you, but you have to bring the money. And then because sometimes it, and the companies, they don't want to invest, usually they want to deserve right. some money. So we have to look for money, like with the European Investment Bank, how to get it. Right. And that's again a very complicated procedure, just to easy. get it and to discuss it. So my, and I all the time I think how we can make this faster, easier. Yeah. Also I, I have no receipt, received also to get in touch with the government. I just came from Togo, I made a business, I, I knew I right. had to talk with the president. Okay. And so this is my question to also to Shia said, because I think that can be your role to help to, for governmental relations. Right and with the EIB on how to improve uh, uh, investment, how we can deal with that when we are asked yeah. of money. Yeah, practical,
0: to very money. practical down-to-earth uh, issues that uh, we have to, many businesses have to uh, deal with. Let's, uh, let's uh, go first to Anisent and then uh, take the other panelists as well. Anisent, would you like to answer some of the issues that have been raised as well?
2: Thank you very much. I will not specifically answer a particular question, but I'll just make a general comment. Uh, I think, uh, of course, what is very critical is uh, how you manage your stakeholders and how you approach them. Because we have seen a number of investments failing because someone has come into a country and has gone to the wrong people. So you need to know who are the critical partners and then you look for them. Thank you.
0: So so you need you need a partner in Africa is that what you're saying somebody who knows the terrain who knows yes. the situation?
2: Yes because uh, sometimes you may have uh, Okay, I like telling people that in most cases if you're to succeed you uh, with your investment especially in Africa you of course need a strategy which you may be having while you're still seated here. And then you will get uh, some money maybe from uh, EIB. <laughs> but then uh, what is critical in having those two items work together to give you your desired result are the people. So you need to first of all focus on the people. So look at your stakeholders and look back at how you are getting them. Thank you.
0: Okay. Thank you, innocent. Richard, would you like to come in? And yeah, I'll
2: respond to a A couple of the questions. The
4: second one I I think was a very interesting question because uh, you're absolutely right that private sector development will not work and it will not be successful unless it goes hand in hand with the improvement of vital enabling infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You need that infrastructure, you need the lights to be on, you need the hospitals to be strong, you need roads and water and sanitation projects. You, you, to, to allow an improved, just to allow the ecosystem for private sector to, to flourish. So, I, certainly from the EIB's perspective, I fully agree with the, the, the point you were making. On, 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 on your, your question, Christoph on, on agriculture. Firstly, l- let's talk immediately afterwards. I'd be very happy to come away from this, this uh, session today with a new deal. That would be that would be great. <laughs> that, would be, that would be fantastic. Um, but, but you are also right in that. Uh, an an approach of a billion uh, of of dealing with a billion euro project infrastructure project in in with inside the EU we should not be using the same approach when we're looking at a a small business looking to make an investment in Africa and I think that this is a lesson certainly we at the EIB uh, are slowly learning and we're, we're getting that message we understand that we have to be better and so I think, certainly from our side, we take it very, very, very clearly on board. And I would be happy to talk to you afterwards.
0: Can can I, Richard, can I just ask you? Because this issue of the Marshall Plan for Africa, it just keeps coming up over and over again. George Soros has just talked about it. Of course, the German government is, is planning something similar as well. I mean, you know, we've talked about private sector. Which I mean, Marshall Plan for Africa, as far as I can tell, isn't really about involving the private sector, or, or am I missing but something? I,
4: I think you should look on the look at it in the way of saying, even if this is public sector lending or lending to to sovereigns, this is still important because what it will do is it puts in place this 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 enabling ecosystem to allow private sector to flourish. So it's two sides of the same coin. Without that. Enabling infrastructure without this just basic infrastructure in place in the countries, you won't have long-term sustainable private sector development supporting good jobs, right. and, and and so
3: you need both. You need both.
0: Right. Christoph, do you want to come in? Yeah. You picked uh, up the microphone with such yes. energy. <laughs> no,
3: um, I just want to, to, to agree with what has been said uh, regarding a public-private and, and, and the idea of the Marshall Plan. I think the idea of the Marshall Plan is not um, pure uh, public or pure um, uh, private, but uh, really to combine this as it has been explained, we have really to, to, um, uh, to, to mobilize private capital also by investing with public money. And this is very important that we do this. And infrastructure is a very, very good example for this. And I totally agree also um, with the comment, with the second comment, that we need much more than, for example, specific, special economic zones. That's why I wanted to come back to your question. And um, it's not so much do we believe or do we not believe. We know that there are very um, uh, successful examples, for example, in Asia, uh, of these zones, which, which have been have done a lot in order to boost economic development in Asia. But the circumstances uh, are totally different. And we know from Latin America that a lot of those efforts failed. Uh, the, the point is for me how much free trade is in a special zone, I don't know yet. Which sector will be um, uh, focused on, I don't know yet. The only thing I'm saying is if I want to have foreign direct investment in due time, mm-hmm. which uh, leverage on, on local jobs, I have also to take this option and to, to consider carefully if I couldn't do something in, um, in order to create an environment which is regionally maybe uh, smaller than the whole country uh, where I can create specific conditions, how they should look like and so on. We have to work with our African partners. They have to, of course, they have to decide... Um, which sector and what are we doing there. But I know, for example, some efforts in, um, in Ethiopia, in the textile sector, where um, we know a lot of... Uh, also, Chinese companies are investing and in others from, from, from Asia, from Bangladesh, and this seems to be quite successful. And I do not want to miss this out only, and this is what I'm saying, is after 50 years of experience, we have to ask ourselves, what do we have to do differently? And we have to re-ask ourselves also, about our core beliefs. And our core belief as technical um, um, cooperation was also, yes, we have to work through and with our partners. And even if it takes a long time, governance, we have to uh, concentrate on governance. But if the results Mm -hmm. are so slow Mm -hmm. and the pressure, especially from the young people in order to get jobs are so high, we have to reconsider unconventional things which do not fit to our core beliefs. This was my my, my first message. And uh, the second one is um, last mile, because this uh, is is very much in line with what what I said before. Yes, we also ask ourselves, I mean, we were normally working very intensively on the environment, conducive environment, because we thought with um, strengthening the capacity of our African partners, at the end, there will be an environment which makes it easier for you. But as I said, we, ha- we are considering we might, we might have to go a little bit down on the, on the stream to concrete single projects in order to prepare them better with government contacts and everything that they then become right. financeable or bankable and the colleagues from the AEAB can pick them up or from KFW or the African Development <laughs> Bank or, or whoever. So we are really considering to change a little bit our model as well, mm-hmm. not only to wait for the long-term impact which we got when we work on the, on the, on the business environment and the capacity development, but wha- how to better and direct right. to operate and prepare investment projects.
0: So working, I mean, working uh, in the short term and as catalyst. Thank you. The message is strong, Christoph, and it's, I think, very worthwhile. We've, we've shared it. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Okay, um, there's some really interesting questions there. I, I think the point you make about the minimum levels of infrastructure in place to enable people to do business. I mean, I meet investors all the time that try to do a simple thing, get a factory, right? To produce something. You don't know how difficult it is to A, buy land, lease. I mean, a lot of you in the room have never operated in Africa, frankly. It's difficult to get these things, and you know, I I do think uh, Christoph's got quite a powerful point there. Um, But, you know, what we need to do is make sure that if these things, this basic guarantee, power, for example, and infrastructure in place, actually, you know, it has to have backward linkages into the real economy and into also linking up with, with, uh, you know, the informal sector. But I think the bigger picture as well is that a lot of jobs are relocating out of Asia because of labor cost escalation. Mm-hmm. And the big picture is, before those jobs are automated, Africa has a chance mm-hmm. to get them and to attract them. And I think, really, this is what you're talking to, Christoph. is we don't have the luxury of time. A lot of those jobs could easily disappear within a 10-year time horizon because of automation. Mm-hmm. So um, I, th- I think this is important. Just about this Marshall Plan, I think it's very important that anything that is put forward for, Afri- for Africa is owned by Africa. And I, I just think that's a very important point. Wouldn't it be great to have an Ibrahim Plan for Africa? Ibrahim
0: Africa? has many plans for Africa. you take my point,
1: I think it's quite important to have a high level of ownership, because without that ownership, any plan won't be implemented. Um, and and the question about the uh, CFTA, will it see the light of day? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's interesting. If you look at the, the tripartite free trade area, a lot of people haven't spoken about that today. That's looking to link up Comesa, SADC, and the East African community. Actually, it has turned on and is moving now to, to resolution. It's taken about 10 years to get to that point. But it does look like it's something that is implementable. Um, And and I think that'll probably happen to the CFTA. I mean, I think Nigeria and South Africa have specific concerns. And in Nigeria, there are many entrepreneurs who are making money out of protectionism. Mm. Uh, I don't want to name them publicly, but they are. And they may not be the, the, they hold a lot of influence with the current government. Um, I think in South Africa, the has taken over and people are very concerned about, uh, about jobs. Uh, That's what we've talked about. But South Africa exports and trades completely different things than Nigeria does. And the potential for trade is actually huge. And I think, really, the point I think to to bring across is that those countries need to understand those benefits. You asked in the questions, do the fears outweigh the benefits? Generally, most people think, actually, the benefits do outweigh the potential losses. But there will be adjustments. And that needs to be thought through. Because all of this is political as well as economic. And I think, you know, that is really the point, is those two huge economies in Africa need to be brought over. I think the political momentum is strong, and uh, that will happen with time. But it is something that will need quite a lot more analysis and advocacy.
0: Right. Thank you very much. I think on that note, we'll come to the end of what has been a fascinating uh, journey into, as I said, the unexplored bits of Africa. I think one thing that uh, we've learned is that Africa is on the move. And I think this conference, with all the different uh, people we brought over from civil society, government, business, have shown that there is a story out there that is just dying to be told. And I'm very, very happy that we've been able to tell a part of the story today, thank you to all of you who've helped us to do that africa's on the move but also uh, on the move but also in a hurry and so we don't really have much time to lose in this endeavor so thank you very much indeed please join me in thanking our panelists thank you very much indeed for your questions and your participation it's been a long hot day Uh, but thank you very much for being there and we are being compensated now we will have our reward there will be refreshments outside thank you very